You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. Hi, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Saumya. We are very pleased to welcome Dean Murphy. Dean is a principal solution consultant at ABP, a process automation consultancy and a service company. He has been involved in consultancy, business automation, technology and services delivery for many years. To start, could you give us a short sketch of your career to date? Yes, certainly. And uh, firstly, uh, hi guys, I'm I'm really excited to be uh, chatting to you today. So I've been working in IT since I left school uh, back in 1983, so a long time ago. And I'd probably spent the last 21, 22 years working in what's called pre-sales. So working with technology companies and helping their customers to understand how that technology can help and benefit them. So I would often say that, uh, to use an analogy, I lead the horse to water and it's down to the sales guy to make a drink. So I convince a customer that the solution is right for them. And then the, the salesperson would essentially hopefully close the deal with that customer and, and win some business for, for our company. Over the last 20 years, I've worked for small consultancies, small startups, um, organizations that are 15 people. I've worked for IBM and Accenture, which are hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. Uh, and a, a number of organizations in between, including um, ABP. And uh, prior to that, I was at a company called UiPath, the, who provide intelligent automation software to, to businesses. And I was there for four years. What I like about my role is the, the diversity that I, that I have, working with lots of different customers, lots of different companies across a number of different industries. And you would think that when you're selling software and technology, every customer would look the same, but they don't. Every customer is different. Their starting point is different. Their priorities, their culture is different. Their customer base, how they go to market are all different. And so you end up having to treat each customer as an individual. And, and I really enjoy that aspect of the role. Uh, so can you tell us about ABP's mission and where does the School of Automation fit within that vision? ABP is a, um, a consultancy organization that helps organizations focus on business improvement, whether that's through technology um, or through consulting services. And if it's technology-led, using tools like UiPath's um, business automation platform, then one of, one of our missions is to make sure that our customers are self-sufficient in being able to, to work with that technology, to be able to build their own process automations, to be able to maintain those, look after them, and look after the environment. To support that, of course, they need skills in their, in their organization. Many, many of the companies that I work with don't have that skill today. So... Options are they can come out to an organization like ABP and they can essentially buy that that as a a service. And so we provide consultants on a day rate or they could use something like the School of Automation and essentially recruit from that. So the School of Automation really was um, an organization that ABP formed a few years ago to be able to create the next wave of consultants and automation developers for the market, but we wanted to take an approach that was different. So we we targeted people from underprivileged backgrounds, 
know, um, enthusiastic and talented people that maybe due to their personal circumstances just weren't able to go to university. Either they were they needed to to earn money to support the rest of their family, or the the family just couldn't support them in in taking that approach to to further education. So the school of automation really is um, giving people an opportunity they wouldn't normally have. And one of the things we found is that the the talent that we're unearthing through the school of automation is just phenomenal. And around about twenty five percent of ABP's UK workforce have come out of the school of automation. So we've actually you know taken them into our core consulting organisation, and the rest have found work within our customers. So what the school of automation is enabling our customers to become effective in how they're getting to self sufficiency by leveraging these. Now, highly skilled, highly motivated um, uh, young individuals, and and really fueling the the Irish and the UK economy through the school of automation. Now, traditionally, uh, in order to to achieve a, a competitive price point, an organisation like ABP would have to offshore development to places like India uh, and the Far East. But by u- using a mixture of senior and experienced automation consultants with the less experienced graduates that are coming out of the School of Automation, we're able to deliver our projects using onshore resource based in the UK and Ireland at a cost-effective and competitive way. And again, sustaining the, the, the economies of, of both countries by making sure that that revenue stays within those markets and doesn't go uh, into, into offshore pockets. Could you share your thoughts on the technologist as a salesperson? Okay, so yeah, so when I think back to the early time when I was working in pre-sales, a lot of the interaction that I had with customers was very product-centric. It was, um, I, I was selling a particular product and, and that's what I would demonstrate and that's what I would talk about. It was very feature function-led. Now, the problem with that is that you're expecting the customer or the buyer to identify themselves within that product. And in many cases, I'm often talking a different language to the customer. I'm talking oh, a product language rather than the customer's industry language or the language that they use internally within their business. And so if we take a technology-led approach to how we go about being a salesperson, we're potentially missing opportunities. Uh, let, let me give you an example. So I used to work for IBM, and IBM have a, an amazing facility in Hursley. Um, it's an old stately home. This built this um, facility has an amazing history. It was used in the Second World War as a hospital. They developed the Spitfire engine in the ballroom in in the main house. So when IBM take their customers there, it's a very impressive um, facility. And some of my colleagues at the time had taken the the CTO, the marketing director, uh, and one of the guys from operations from this bus and rail operator down to Hursley to uh, have an executive briefing. And they took them around a lot of the innovation labs that IBM have there. And they were showing them things like Internet of Things, technology, um, a whole load of stuff, but they were showing them technology. And partway through the day, um, the, the, the CTO stopped them and said, you showed me technology, I can't see how my business will benefit from, from this tech. So they decided to, to call halt to it and we then uh, scheduled a, um, 
a discovery workshop with them to to help them to understand kind of what problems they have and then how can technology help them. And when we kicked off that workshop, this is the first point that I got involved. I, I was leading the workshop. I went around the room asking for introductions and for expectations of the day. And, and the CTO said, if you talk to me about IBM tech products or technology, I'm going to get up, I'm going to leave the room, and I'm not coming back. We ran the entire workshop focused on the customer, not on the IBM technology. So what that, what that demonstrated to me is that it's important that the customer is front and center in what we do and not the technology. And it's down to us as, in my case, as a pre-sales consultant to understand the customer and work back to the solution that I represent and how I can solve that customer's problems. Thank you. So on trap of thinking, it's all about the technology. How do I force myself to be focused on the customer? Okay, so there's a trick that I use that we can all use. So we all bank. We all use banks. We, we all have to have insurance. We all require healthcare services. We all are, um, require council services. We all fly. We all buy cars. So essentially, in many cases, we're our customer's customer. So we, have, we can bring a perspective in thinking like their customer when we engage with them. And so by taking that approach, thinking like the customer's customer, you start to think about what kind of services and what kind of expectations do I have as your customer? And then when we engage with that customer, we can be thinking through that lens. Another technique that I use is to try and put myself into the role that the people have that I'm working with. So I'm working with somebody in finance and accounting that is having to type information from an invoice into their ERP system. I try to picture myself doing that. I know what an invoice looks like. I know what kind of information we're going to need from that. Invoice number, invoice dates, total amount, net amount, VAT, and so on. And so by thinking about the, the tedium of some of those tasks, I can probably empathize with the people that are doing that job and start to think about how can I help you make that better? And what experience can I bring to you uh, through the solutions that I represent that's going to also going to make your life better? But more importantly, the experience that you deliver in turn to, to you, ultimately to your customers. So by using those techniques, we can really become consultative in how we engage with customers because we're trying to immerse ourselves into the, the, the life of, of people within that organization. And so for me, that's a very important thing to do is to, to have that empathy and that understanding. And, and most importantly, ask questions. Now, this is a little bit artificial for me because I'm doing most of the talking. In most situations, I'm asking more questions than I, than I, um, uh, than I, I, I'm doing less talking than I am now. And I often say to people, as a consultant, we have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that ratio. Listen more than you talk, because when you do that, you find out far more about the customer, the challenges they have by listening than you do by talking. I often joke that um, I, I work with a lot of salespeople. Salespeople like to talk for a living. And I refer to them as a carbon monoxide converter. They're not necessarily adding value. They're just adding carbon monoxide to the, to the atmosphere. Can you now tell us the difference and challenges that a public sector brings versus a private sector? Yeah, certainly. So 
I've worked with organizations across both public and private sector. And in my own experience, the, the main difference is that the private sector is value focused. They want to see a return on investment. They want to make sure that when they when they invest in, in the technology or the solution that I represent, that they're going to, to get their money back and more. And there's different ways in which they could potentially realize that. What I'm finding in the public sector is they're very cost focused. How much is this going to cost me rather than how much is it going to save me? I think part of that comes down to how business cases are, are created in, in both sectors. Now, these are quite big generalizations. And some organizations do operate differently, both in the public and private sector. But in my experience, it it, is that difference. So when I've worked with private sector organizations, in many cases, the first thing they say is, we don't have budget for this. So what we do is we work with them to identify the value that they've got locked up and the things that they do today. So a lot of things I do today are around business improvement and process automation. So taking manual processes that people do at their computers, a lot of data entry and rekeying, and work with solutions that can automate that. By doing that, we can potentially remove some of the work that people do. When we do that, one of the things we found is that we can actually create budget because we're demonstrating a compelling return on investment. The, the business is going to be able to make savings as a result of implementing this kind of solution. Now, we don't just do that. We've got to go through a whole set of uh, evidence-based proof points. So we run things like discovery workshops to understand what process they have today, which ones are good candidates for automation. Um, how much time do they spend doing those things? What is the impact of the, on the business of, of the time taken to do those things? What is the cost of, of running those processes manually today? And then we can use that to build a business case. And if we build a compelling enough business case, we can unlock value and unlock budget within our customers. In the, in the public sector, we often find that we're working with a particular department or a, you know, if we take a, a, a local council, for example, we're often working with a particular service line. It may be something like adult social care. Or if we're working in the healthcare organization, we may be working with the finance and accounting team on back office functions. And quite often, those are department level budgets that we're trying to tap into. And so sometimes it's almost like death by a thousand cuts trying to, to sell into these, these departments. Whereas what we prefer to do is elevate the conversation to a more strategic level within the organization work with uh, executives within those organizations and make things like automation a strategic objective and goal within the business aligned to the commitments that they've made to their customers, to the citizens, to their patients. And so by doing that, quite often we're able to then shift that conversation to something more similar to what we would have in the, in the private sector. But in the main, I do see the, the two key differences being private sector is value-driven, public sector is cost-driven. Uh, the, so the impact of automation is often cast as a negative, like jobs lost and that kind of a thing. So how valid are these fears and criticisms? And how do you deal with introducing automation and AI solutions into client sites? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's one that I, I face on an almost daily basis. If I th think back to when I first got involved in business improvement, um, I used to work for a company called Click Software that made 
software that would help to schedule field service engineers. So if you've got a, a gas engineer needs to come out to your home uh, to, re to repair a fault on your, on your gas meter or on your boiler, then chances are it was Click Software's scheduling software that was making sure we were allocating the right engineer with the right skills at the right time uh, to, to your particular job. Now, in many cases, one of the things we could do is we could reduce the size of the workforce because if we we're being more efficient about how we were allocating work to engineers, reducing travel time and so on, and giving them more time to actually spend on the job, we potentially didn't need as many engineers. But in many cases, those organizations wanted to grow their business. They didn't want to just stand still. Uh, and so often you'll hear phrases like, do more with less. My, what I prefer to say is, do more with the same. If we do more with the same, you're actually growing your business. Do more with less, your business is stable and, and isn't going to is unlikely to grow. And then when I first got involved in automation software back in 2018 when I joined UiPath, again in the early days, a lot of the value was realized through headcount reduction, taking cost out of the business. But since things like COVID, what we often find is that organizations need to deliver efficiency because a lot of their employees are overworked today. And so what I'm seeing is there's now a focus on other metrics other than just headcount reduction, improving customer service, um, improving customer experience, and just as importantly, improving employee experience. Because if we think about it in business, there's a cost to acquire customers. There's also a cost to acquire new people into the business. And if people are leaving because they don't enjoy the jobs that they do, it's a cost associated with replacing those people. So if we can create a, a better work environment because we're taking away those repetitive mundane tasks that people don't enjoy doing, we create a happier workforce. What we also do is we free them up to focus on higher value activities using their brains and knowledge and experience rather than the, their fingers on the mouse and keyboard. So by doing that, what we're doing is we're, we're shifting the focus away from headcount reduction onto uh, other business key performance indicators or, or KPIs. Uh, if I um, try and think about some examples here. So um, I, I worked with a, um, uh, an a food delivery organization. Now, this is a, a very rapidly growing organization that wanted to expand out into other markets outside of the UK. Uh, and also into other services beyond just food delivery. Now, one of the challenges they have is that in a fast and rapidly growing organization, they've got challenges in how quickly they can onboard new people. So they could take a traditional approach. As the business grows, the number of people increases in a linear fashion. But what they wanted to do is that that would just increase the cost base and make the business justification for growth very challenging. So we work with them to introduce automation into their business to first and foremost, accelerate the onboarding of, of new hires. And, and secondly, to then be able to focus on improving the experience that their customers have, the restaurants, in being onboarded as well. So what it meant was we were able to now start to accelerate and support sustainable growth within the business but it was no longer linear in terms of headcount increase. So by, by shifting focus away from 
things like headcount reduction and into areas like growth, um, it becomes very compelling. I, I worked with a, an insurance company at the back end of, of last year. And as a business, they knew that um, the insurance market was, was quite stable at the moment. There, there was going to be no growth. But one of the things they wanted to do is reduce their cost to serve with their customers. So when a customer calls in about a, an insurance renewal or uh, about a claim or about um, taking out an insurance policy, all those things take time for the contact center to be able to deal with. And what that meant was that then the, the length of the call was impacting uh, their other customers that were calling in in a queue and then would, would abandon the queue because it was taking too long and they would go to one of their competitors. So what we looked at was ways in which we can improve the customer experience so that we could reduce the call handling time so they could service more customers with a more personal uh, offering and really enable them to achieve their, their business objectives, which was improve customer experience and customer service without having to grow the, the cost base within the contact center. So there's a number of ways in which businesses these days are really focused on improve business improvement without just taking cost out of the business. Um, you've talked about storytelling as a key skill for consultants, for analysts and technologists. Do you have an example, maybe like the Rubik's Cube? Yeah, certainly. So um, I think for me, storytelling is, is a very key component in what we do, not only in, in my role, but in, in any role. Using storytelling is great, but sometimes using analogies is just as powerful. And uh, one of the things that I'm developing at the moment that, that I, I ran by Alan when I was um, first chatting about this was potentially a Rubik's Cube. So you think about a Rubik's Cube is a completed Rubik's Cube could be considered an analogy for a perfectly operating high performance business. So everything is in the right place where it needs to be. But in my experience, most organizations don't look like a completed Rubik's Cube. They look more like this. A little bit mixed up. They've got all the right ingredients, all the right components, in this case, all the right colors. They're just not in the right place. So the first thing they need to think about is, do we have the right strategy? So I'm going to use a white face. So imagine each of these faces is, is a different function within the business. The white face is our, um, our business strategy. And then maybe the red face is finance and accounting. Um, the blue face could be HR and so on. So the first thing many organizations do is think, okay, well, let's get our strategy in place. So I'm slowly building it up so that it's, I've now got essentially the, the white face of the Rubik's Cube. So I've now got my business strategy. But unfortunately, when I look at the other faces, each of those different departments, they're not aligned to that strategy. So the first thing I need to do is get all of my senior stakeholders at all these different departments aligned to, to that business strategy. So I'm going to get the, all the green ones in the, in the same place. So let's go ahead and do that. Now, there's an analogy here, which is um, working with an organization like AVP can help you to do this. Because when you look at a Rubik's Cube, there are a, a number of uh, activities that we perform in Rubik's Cube terms, these are called algorithms, that enable us to essentially solve the Rubik's Cube. So there's a set of moves. Now, that comes through experience. I learned to do the Rubik's Cube when I was like 13 or 14, so much longer ago than I care to remember. 
Um, but through mental muscle memory, I'm still able to remember how to do it. And so when we work with an organization like ABP, we've got this experience, we've got this mental muscle memory to help you as an organization to become more efficient. So now I've got my strategy. I've now got all of my senior stakeholders aligned to that strategy, but not everything is in place. And what I need to do now is make sure that all of my functions within that, my, my business are aligned. So I'll start to align. Okay, now I've got my, started to see some of my strategy coming together. I've got my, my blue centers, my red centers, my finance, HR, and so on. But I don't necessarily have the alignment between my different departments set up correctly. So the next thing I need to do is work on that. So again, there are algorithms that we can perform that enable us to do that. So what I'm doing now is essentially making sure that all my different business functions are aligned with each other so that we can operate as a very efficient business. And so what I'm doing now is I'm looking at how is the business operating today? How does it need to operate? And what changes do I need to make to enable that business to function well? So I've got my business strategy. My C-level are aligned to that. My mid-management are aligned to that. My departments are now aligned. So we're all operating and measuring and, and um, I'm moving in the right direction. But now we need to win hearts and minds of the people that are, you know, um, the people that are doing the jobs, the people that are performing these processes, that are, that are doing the work today. So I'm now going to go bottom up. So I'm going to work from the bottom of the organization up. So I'm going to flip over the cube. Now, the first thing you need to do is make sure that some of my supporting functions are in place. So imagine, imagine this yellow face is IT. Now, right now, IT is not fully supporting the business. So the first thing I need to do, again, is start to align that business. So I've now got my business aligned to my different departments. But not all of my people now are in the right roles. So I've got the right colors in the right place. In the, I've got the right colors in the wrong places. So what I need to do is make sure that my people now are in the right places. So again, through the experience that I have, we're able to start to move people around the business and start to make sure they're all in the right places. Now, sometimes this takes a little bit of, a little bit of time because I need to train people. I need to help them to understand why we're making these changes. But now I've got the people in the right place. So in this corner here, I've got um, blue, red, and yellow. But my people aren't trained. They're not doing the right things. So what I need to do now is train them. So I go through and I run a training program and a change management program with all those people and make sure that everybody understands why we're doing things a certain way. I've gone wrong. I oh, know. Ah, that is terrible. How can I go wrong when I'm doing it live? <laughs> it happens. <laughs> it happens. It is. I can, okay, I so. can genu genuinely, he's a master at the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> yes. So, um, so what, when, I'm, when I'm operating on full power, because I'm doing it at, at an awkward angle, and as I say, my mental muscle memory is not quite where it needs to be. But what we've now got is our highly efficient, high-performant business aligned to our business strategy. All of our different departments are aligned and functioning against that business strategy underpinned by a, a strong IT function. So when we use analogies, then we can really create that representation, that memorable thing. 
Uh, and what I hope from this is that when you go away from this session um, and you talk to your families, you'll remember the Rubik's Cube analogy because it, it plants a seed because through the power of things like storytelling, we're creating something relatable that helps you to remember. And what I try to do is I try to create competitive differentiation in the experience the customers have working with me. A lot of the things I've talked about today, putting myself into the um, mind of the customer, the mind of the customer's customer, using storytelling. All those things are what I try to use to create that compelling competitive differentiation that makes me look different to all the other ABP type organizations that are out there. Thank you. That is a really interesting analogy. Uh, I think we will now take any other extra questions from the class. Um, hi, thank you for taking the time um, to uh, share your stories with our business analytics class today. And I really like your example about storytelling, and I'm glad you mentioned it because actually today we learned about the important traits of a consultant. So one thing that I like noticed that many consultants are often junk or like they are either like early career starter, meaning they start consultancy uh, career from very young age. So I'm wondering is that like, would age also play a role in consultancy? And do you have any advice for mature students uh, from technical background trying to get into the consultancy roles? Yeah, certainly, so a very interesting question. So because I've worked for, for many consultancies, I've worked for Accenture, I've worked for IBM and, and now at ABP, one of the things I find is that it's, it's the diversity of, of age and, and culture that really help an organization to uh, be strong and, and deliver the right services to their customers. Um, young people tend to be more energetic, quicker to learn, uh, enthusiastic. Uh, and, and people that are maybe a little more mature, like myself, um, often find that ability to, to learn and adapt more challenging. But we bring with us a wealth of experience, both life experience and business experience that is, that is uh, relevant and important to our customers. And so for me, by combining the kind of the, the younger, more enthusiastic and energetic people with the older, um, uh, more experienced people, what we create is something that is greater than the sum of the parts. And so one of the things I find when I, when I work with people that are just starting out in their careers, I, I learn so much from them in terms of attitude, mindset, uh, and so on. And uh, hopefully they learn from me in terms of experience, techniques, and other things that, um, that I've applied and, and learned throughout the years. So I think for me, the, uh, you know, th there isn't a, a right or wrong time to get into this. Uh, I would say that I came into it kind of mid-career which was probably a good time for me um, because I, I, I didn't follow a higher education route. Um, I, I'm not academically gifted. I, I left school at 16 with no qualifications, my biggest, biggest regret. Um, and so I've had to go through the, um, my career and the career ladder starting right at the very bottom. My first job was as a laborer for an electrician. And my job after that was um, a, a filing clerk in, in a, an organization. But what it gave me was experience of working in all those different business functions, the challenges associated with it, that I can now draw upon later in my career. So I think that the, the real benefit that you guys will have is 
you've got that that, that kickstart that I that I didn't have um, due to my background and, and my laziness at school, if you will. Uh, and so I think that uh, somebody like yourselves with the, the career opportunities that are ahead of you with um, where the workplace is today, I think that if you embrace it and ideally find a mentor in, in the organizations you go to work for, you will have a phenomenal career. And don't forget, you can teach as much as you can be taught. Hi, my name is Manali. Um, so we were discussing today in class all the key traits that a consultant must possess. I'm asking through your experience while you're hiring somebody for the role of a consultant. Of course, we don't come with a lot of industry experience. What are three traits that you look forward to in a new hire? Yes. So I think for me, it's it's passion and enthusiasm. Because I think one of the things that does, it, it translates to the, for the customer. I, I, can, I can teach you things. I can teach you products. I can teach you storytelling techniques. I can teach you how to be a consultant. What I can't teach is attitude and enthusiasm. So, so that passion and enthusiasm is one. I think for me, when you enjoy the work that you do, it stops feeling like a job. So seeing the job that you have as something that doesn't just pay the bills, that it's something that you enjoy and um, uh, feel personal reward from, almost like a hobby that you get paid for. If you can see work that way, um, then, then great. I think for me as well is, is drive and ambition. If, if, somebody, if I was interviewing somebody and they said, and I said, no, I'd ask a terrible interview question. If I would say, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And they say, well, maybe doing the same job, but maybe a couple of levels higher. That's not the level of driving enthusiasm. Now, what I'm looking for is somebody that says, I want to be doing your job in, in that time. Because for me, when I'm hiring, I'm hiring people better, my, better than myself. Because for me, succession management is an important factor in everything that we do within, within um, as, as, as leaders, as mentors. And so for me, I think those will be the, the, the three key things. Passion, enthusiasm, enthusi- and a, a, a genuine interest in the job that you do and the things that you're going to be doing. And also uh, drive and ambition. Not being egotistical with it. Um, I think there's a way to, to do that with humility. Um, okay, I have another question. I'm so sorry. Um, so consultants are usually known to have lead a very busy life. You know, you're always on the move. You're always, I've heard you're creating slide decks. You're meeting a lot of clients. <laughs> how how would you uh, suggest, you know, uh, a consultant maintain their work-life balance? Is there such a concept in a consultant's life? There is. I, I came across a phrase recently um, that I much prefer to work-life balance, it's work-life integration. So I think the key difference, when we often talk about work-life balance, we'll often talk about the amount of time that I spend working versus the amount of time that I spend not working. Um, and if that balance is, is out, then it can affect our family life. Um, it can affect our mental health. For me, work-life integration is, how does my work-life integrate into my personal life? Because there may be times where I need to work at the weekend. But with the the right employer, the right work environment, the right work culture, we can take time out during the working day where maybe we're not quite so busy. So for me, that ability to um, work with an employer that has uh, give and take, 
but as employees, that we don't take advantage of that, that we, we deliver on what is required, what's in front of us. And one of the ways we can do that is to become output focused rather than input focused. So what am I achieving? Am I achieving my goals? And one of the techniques that I use is I set myself goals, many goals throughout the day. So if I'm, uh, I may start work at eight or nine o'clock, depending on, on my work, on my work load. And what I'll do is I'll say, okay, I want to achieve this by 10 o'clock. If I do that, then I'll go and get a coffee and a biscuit. If I achieve the next thing by 1 p.m., I go ahead and have my lunch on time. If I achieve this by 4 p.m., maybe I can finish work early on a Friday and maybe um, go for a walk with my wife. So for me, it's about how do we become output-focused and, and set ourselves many goals and not allow us ourselves to be dragged down into the just focus on the work, focus on the output. Um, I think one of the, one of the key phrases that I that I take away from um, a, a previous leader that I worked with: aim for completion, not perfection. Okay, because although if you aim for completion, aim for perfection, you'll run out of time. Aim for completion, get the job done, and then in the remaining time, you can then use to polish. And so there are some mindsets you can start to employ that enable you to have that work-life balance or that work-life integration. So one final question. Uh, so you mentioned about diversity and culture. So I'm sure as a manager, you've come across that a lot. So I just want to know, as a manager, what is one of the biggest challenges you faced probably while working in a consulting firm? And maybe what did you do to kind of counter that? Or I think one of the biggest challenges, particularly in the area of technology that I work in, is it's very male-dominated. Um, now, when I'm recruiting, I don't have any uh, preconceptions about the people that I want. I want good people. And unfortunately, it's a very male-dominated environment, so it's, it's often difficult to attract um, gender equality within, within a team. The team that I managed at UiPath, for example, was all male. But what I did have was um, cultural diversity. I had people from Ireland, from the UK, from India, from Pakistan, um, uh, from Romania. So I was able to, to bring in cultural diversity that helps the team become more understanding of the differences that we have in terms of business culture, but also more importantly, the, the commonality that we have. Now, working at ABP, there's a, there's a little bit more cultural diversity, sorry, gender diversity than we had at, at UiPath, certainly in, in the role that I had. Um, and so it's, it's, it's good working with a, a diverse range of, of individuals because we all bring a unique perspective, whether that's um, culture-based, gender-based, or, or uh, even our belief systems. But it's always difficult because you can only recruit the people who apply for the role. Now, my hiring policy is always the right person for the job. Um, and if that enables me to, to bring in cultural, gender, and, and um, uh, other diversities, then all, all the better. So what I would encourage is, you know, apply for roles. Don't, um, you know, when you think about it, don't just focus on um, something that would, would align to, to your gender or your, your, your background or your ethnicity or anything like that. Just you know, go for the role and, um, and trust that the hiring manager will be open-minded in, in the, uh, the diversity that they're trying to build into their team. 
as I say, I, I would have loved to have had more diversity in my team, but as I say, you can only recruit the people that apply. Well, we'll wrap up there, Dean. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today. No, you're welcome. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this session. I was looking forward to it and I've, I've taken a lot away from it. So thank you. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. Thank you.